0: Okay. I'm so, going insane. You're going insane. Your life is crazy right now. I'm a crazy person.
1: <laughs> Allie just started back at school. Sands kids at the moment, but the kids are on their way like a tidal wave. They're coming towards they're the ocean. Waiting. Towards the sandy beach.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for it.
1: Your life is, you have so much going on. My life is relatively the same. More <laughs> carnage in my backyard. Perfect. I looked out the other day, and my backyard was covered in white feathers.
0: Somebody killed a morning dove?
1: A hawk was standing over the dead body of a dove in my backyard.
0: There will be peace on earth, but not today. Not today. And then it
1: took it and flew it up in the air. But there, I mean, I have a picture of it. White Pure white feathers all over my yard. We're not
0: from Montana. What is going on in my backyard? (laughs) It's not safe. (laughs) We've had two bunny findings, two bunny nooks, and now a hawk (laughs) killing a dove. An innocent, innocent dove. If they, are these signs? Are these signs of some sort? They must. Be. They have to be. They must be. There's no other way. I
1: I don't understand what else it could be.
0: <laughs> uh, but
1: we're not here to talk about wildlife. No, we're here to talk about history. on the rocks with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about. Famous women in history. We talk
0: about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we're drinking the entire time. And we're not historians. Yeah,
1: definitely not.
0: We do what we can.
1: We like to Google. We watch YouTube videos. So if you notice anything that we get wrong, just send us a nicely worded email and we will address it. Because trust me, there are things we will get raw. Oh.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> I will say over the years, we started this in 2018. Oh it's gosh. 2023 <sighs> over the years. Now I like, if I go to like a bookstore and there's like a women's history book, you know, where they have a whole bunch uh-huh. of pictures on front producer will be like, can you name all those women? And I can usually wow. get yeah, what a
1: fun game. Yeah, it is
0: like, and cause it's different portraits and stuff. Yeah. I can usually get, I want to say like 93% of the women. That's pretty good. Some of them, it's like, I know we covered them. I just can't remember their name.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, I want to shout out one name in particular. Listener Sarah sent us a very lovely welcome back from vacation email. So kind. Sarah. Sarah, Thank you. I just so nice. It really made my day. We missed you. You missed us. And we're all back together. But then next week is the finale.
0: Yeah. For this season. This This is the penultimate
1: app. be taking another little break but you guys know we don't go away for too long yeah (laughs) it'll
0: be one week
1: (laughs) we act like it's a huge break yeah
0: and on the break we're still doing like a bonus episode exactly (laughs) so we're
1: gonna be doing our bonus episode just for you guys to get ready on gilmore girls the time (gasps) goes we're heading into the fall season so if you guys have opinions that you would like us to chat about on this special episode you can join us on patreon and mm-hmm. we can talk before we record. It's yeah. going to be great. Give so us what you us want know. us to
0: talk about. The ladies of Gilmore Girls. You need a section on Miss Kim? We can do a section. We can do You it. need Gypsy? We can do <laughs> we Gypsy. <got>
1: you.
0: <laughs> you need Babette. <laughs> I always need Babette.
1: <laughs> get him, sugar. Buckle up on Patty. <laughs> so anyways, but um, again, we're yeah. here to get into the show. Yeah. Um, you're and busy. You're really busy. <laughs> we all know that. You're... Turning your beautiful wardrobe into a magical gate to Narnia.
0: A gate to Narnia? Just getting
1: fall things out I of just, the wardrobe. Yeah, yes. just getting fall you're things getting out fall of the wardrobe. Out. It's changing and now you're gonna make it a magical place. I'm this I pulled this out because you have a line the witch in the wardrobe wardrobe in here i seriously do you really do i know i love it so you need to do something about that okay um (laughs) should i put a lion in it (laughs) i'll
0: call the sale and a witch
1: okay (gasps) um but anyway so you're busy doing that so you don't have time to look up what these women look like physically so what we're gonna do is we're gonna describe them for you by getting a little physical physical Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like?
0: Well, on this penultimate episode of this (laughs) banger season, I am doing Louisa May Alcott. Amazing. Can't believe we haven't done her since. Big name. Well, we did Joe March a while ago Mm -hmm. and then we we had to break and you did Joe March and we made the deal that I would do Louisa. (laughs) Okay. So Louisa has an oval face with kind of big sunken eyes and a little bit of a prominent nose. She has very dark brown hair parted in the middle and tied back. In my favorite picture of her, there's kind of like these ringlets near the back and an intricate... Um, like twisting of hair on the side. And I I think it's a really cute picture. And there's one that's been recolorized that I'm going to really? yeah pull up for you. It makes it look like she has lighter colored eyes. Like uh-huh. maybe they're hazel, but Aww. that might be fictionalized.
1: I don't know if you have this, but sometimes I have a hard time like judging people's eye color. I think just because mine are brown, I yeah. like don't really dive too deep into it <laughs> yeah isn't
0: that a lovely picture i love that
1: yeah that's a really good picture of
0: her yeah and I we'll like post it. this one on instagram when the yeah. episode comes up it's really nice like somebody took their time to just like very light. it's kind of yeah. like pop art a little yeah. bit
1: I like that. Okay,
0: who are you doing and What does she look like? I am
1: doing Juliet Capulet,
0: the girl on
1: the balcony. Um, Juliet is a young Italian girl of just 13. She is always described as beautiful. I mean, so beautiful, Romeo says. She is the sun itself. (laughs) We aren't really given any specifics, but she has always been portrayed by young, beautiful women with soft, pale skin and dark hair. She typically wears... Long, like yellow and red robes. Um, but then, of course, like there's usually some kind of white element involved in her character. Um, she wears beautiful headpieces and a cross around her neck. But of course, how she looks is up for interpretation since she is one of the most reimagined characters, I mean, of all time. I mean,
0: she's a gnome <laughs> at some point. I can't believe you referenced that because I reference it in the story. <laughs> Nomeo and Juliet a classic is it good (laughs) don't know i've never seen it
1: okay (laughs) but it is funny to me that like i do make a joke about this in my story but like you google who's played juliet and (laughs) fucking emily blunt is at the top of the
0: list as it should be as it should be what a classic british actress playing a classic shakespearean roll. i love it i love it <laughs> okay but uh, we right. have to get into what we're drinking yes it looks delightful what is it this is called rags and riches Ooh. and it is two ounces of whiskey uh three-fourths of an ounce of lemon juice a little bit of simple syrup you um mush up What's that called? Muddle. muddle. <laughs> I told you I'm going crazy. You muddle blackberries in the bottom of a cocktail shaker, pour all the ingredients in, shake it up, pour it over ice. Um, and then you'll I didn't strain it. So there are big chunks of black raspberry in there. And okay. then also a slice of lemon. And um, then I topped it all off with like a soda water. Perfect. Cheers. Cheers. Mm, it's really refreshing. Yes. Mm. Very light, which usually you don't get with a whiskey drink.
1: <gasps> I forgot there was even whiskey in here. This is the only liquor. Oh my gosh. And there's two ounces of whiskey in there. So mm. it's like not like going light on it. I couldn't have picked out whiskey if you had paid me a million dollars. Yeah. Which couldn't is like I it. don't
0: really like whiskey, but we have it in my house. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I
1: have to use it. Wow. That is really interesting. Mm. I like it. Yeah. Mm. That's good.
0: Good. Okay. So tell me what you know about Louisa May Alcott. I know that she wrote
1: Little Women. Mm -hmm. I feel like she was a spinster, and I feel like she wanted to reflect her spinsterhood in Joe March, and they, like, would not let Joe March not get married Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the end of the book. Yeah. I feel like I remember that being a thing, of, like, she wanted Joe to truly be her, and, like, that just didn't end up happening because it just... you couldn't have that she you had could. to sell it she ha- yeah, she had yeah. to sell it exactly, um, but yeah, I don't think she ever got married. I think that she yeah, and now she's just like memorialized as like one of the great American authors, yeah, like she's legendary, she, but I don't really know anything
0: about her, there are like so many like genres and so many pieces, and it, uh-huh. it's like we all connect her to little w like the author of little women, yeah,
1: I literally don't I have no idea if she wrote I know that she wrote like a whole bunch of books. That were like sequels to Little Women, mm-hmm. like Joe's Boys, whatever. But like, I have no idea if she wrote anything else.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about <laughs> it. All right. I obviously started with the Wikipedia page to get a good background. It always does that. I've read Little Women, both parts. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read uh, nothing else that she's written, but I did a couple of snippets for this week. I've watched all of the different genres of little women movies, and then I listened to the History Chicks, who have a great episode on her. Oh, perfect. And they, I'm going to touch on her parents a little bit, but they do a much bigger deep dive into the economic situation of the family, so if you want some more details about why her life is so crazy, that's where you should go. Okay, interesting. Yeah.
1: Well, Her house is still there right? One of them. Okay.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Yes, you can visit her house on Orchard Hill. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So Louisa May Alcott, still of the same name, was born November ninth, 1832 in what is now the like outskirts of Philadelphia. And she was born on her father's 33rd birthday. But before she was born, I kind of want to go back to her parents a little bit just so you can understand her wild childhood. Also, hold on. I've glossed over that. Her and her dad have the same birthday. Yeah, they were born on the same day. <laughs> so bizarre. I know. How bizarre. <laughs> How bizarre. Her dad's name, Amos Bronson Alcott, he came from a mostly illiterate family. So he's okay. very, very poor. Um, In fact, the last name Alcott had the spelling changed a whole bunch of times because a lot of people in his family would just write it incorrectly oh. on things. He and his cousin took it upon themselves to like go around town and borrow money and borrow books so they could teach themselves to read. Even so he got himself smart enough to get accepted into schools, but he was kind of shunned from them because he was a poor kid and they Mm -hmm. didn't really want him in the school. So he becomes a traveling peddler, went South, saw slavery in person, Mm. doesn't like slavery, um, took to, uh, took the teacher exams so that he could become a teacher. And then he would use his own money to start schools. So this is a guy who goes around and starts schools. And at, Like, this is the part of the story where her dad seems super cool. So I like this part of him. He was, like, an educational philosopher. So he would add heat and life, like, light to the classrooms. He would decorate them with, like, motivational things. He bought little furniture for little people. Like, he was really trying. But it was all out of his own money. So he's going into debt all the time. So he has no money to support his life. Um, he tried to teach critical thinking. He introduced physical education. He was against corporal punishment. So a lot of the things that he was doing in the 1800s for schools are like what we're doing now. Wow. That's really me, interesting. I know. I had no idea that that's how her dad was. Yeah. What a pioneer. Yeah. Yeah. And he's friends with a lot of super famous people that take on his ideas. So we'll get there in a second. Okay. But one of these guys that he's friends with who's not super famous is like, hey, I want you to come to my house and discuss your education ideas with me. And that's when he meets this guy's little sister, Abigail. Abigail is old U.S. money. She's related to John Hancock. Her nickname's Abba. She's the youngest of 12. Her household was full of books and learning and joy. um, And she was allowed to tag along with her little brother to school. They were trying to force her to get married, but all she wanted was a love match. These two could not be more different. And these are (gasps) Louisa's parents. Oh, my gosh. I don't know why I didn't recognize that that's where this was going. (laughs) These two, Abba and he goes by his middle name, Bronson. Are a love match. This poor boy that's illiterate
1: and Bronson. Uh Oh,
0: and this like rich girl who's like all I want to do is marry for love. That's
1: so cute. Also, I just would love if that was the inspiration for Samantha's alternative pool (laughs) ego. (laughs) Annabelle Bronstein. Probably not, but I like to imagine. Could
0: be. You know, the writers of Sex in the City who know so much about Louisa, May, Louisa May Alcott parents. fans. <laughs> her parents, even.
1: Huge Bronstein Alcott fans. Yes. <laughs> Bronson.
0: So their wedding did end up taking a while because her mother died. So she had to, like, help her dad with the house. Okay. And then she moved in with her brother and his wife died. So she had to help him with the house. Because, like, if you were the single female living in a house where the matriarch died, it's your responsibility right. to take care of the house. How old were they at this point? Because she, uh, she's 20s. pretty young. Oh, in their yeah, 20s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I believe. They okay. might be late teens, but I think they're in their 20s because okay. it did take them a while okay. to, like, get this going. Mm-hmm. Like, t- between three to five years to be allowed to actually get married. Anyway, they do get married. It is a love match. He is what's known as a transcendentalist, mm-hmm. which is a spiritual philosophical lifestyle where every person believes that each person can achieve perfection and it is your job on earth to help other people reach their full potential. Okay. Like it's full of selflessness and helping out. Um it's all about people's inherent goodness, which I don't believe at all. That people are inherently good. <laughs> but you know. So they're constantly moving because he would open a school, use all his money, go bankrupt the family would skip town because they had no way for creditors to like get to you back then so they have daughter number one daughter number two daughter number three while they're moving and moving and moving so louisa is the second oldest and she is sandwiched right between the eldest obedient anna and the at this point the youngest angel lizzie she's the second of four daughters. And they are all in total Anna, Lizzie, Abigail. Abigail not being born yet. Years and years ago, like I said, we did an episode on Joe March. And the personalities of her sisters are perfectly mirrored in Mm -hmm. the personalities of the girls in the story. As a child, she was a tomboy who preferred to play traditional boys' games. Later in life, when she was a writer, she would frequently write about the walks and runs that she would go on which is challenging the prevailing social norms of like gender and how they should act um, in a physical sense louisa always wanted to explore she always wanted to ask questions she never wanted to obey and for a dad who really loved critical thinking he did not love that louisa (sighs) acted like this no in fact he hated it (gasps) It just got her spanked and sent to bed early. In fact, there's this one quote of like, as soon as I tell Louisa not to do something, she does literally everything except for what I told her not to say and do. Oh my god. So he just hates her wild brain even though he encourages wild brains, which is so hypocritical. I can't get over it cuz I really liked him at the beginning of this story. And it's <sighs> all downhill from here for dad. I just feel like that kind of thing is like happen. It it happens for all of
1: humanity. Oh yeah. You know, the people who are like you're like I you do you're going towards these good ideas but then you're not actually executing them or applying them to like your own life. Like it's so frustrating and hypocritical. And then it totally lays waste to the movement that you're trying to create.
0: It does. And
1: frustrating.
0: Abba felt like that too. She married Bronson because she loved him and she loved his ideas. And it creates this big rift and conflict in the family because she wants to teach her daughters to be wild and to have this independent behavior. And she, um, actually has this big philosophy about how (laughs) this is great it's philosophy right now since covid about how the work of women in the household and their sacrifices go unnoticed Mm -hmm. and are not equitable to the sacrifices that Mm -hmm. men put out because Mm -hmm. men do sacrifice yeah but she's like yeah but nobody turns around and says that women sacrifice yeah all of that is being passed on to Louisa. She Mm -hmm. is word for word listening to her mom. Mm -hmm. And you can already kind of see the little women thing. Like, dad is written out of the book. Mom is a very... Marmee is, like, a great character. You know what I mean? Like, you can see it already happening. Oh, you can totally. I mean, Marmee is, like, beloved. Right. And, like,
1: they love their dad, but he is, like, ultimately, because of the war and stuff, like, fairly absent. Yeah. Which I wonder if her was... With her just being like, I don't want to deal with the stuff my dad was doing.
0: Well, from the way I was looking at it, you know how, like, books nowadays, like Harry Potter or whatever, you have to make a kid an orphan so that they can be independent? Yes. They had to get rid of the man Mm. for them to be independent. And because he's kind of like a dick whole dad, like, they were independent women. Yeah. So they just wrote, she wrote him out of the story to make it believable. Yeah.
1: That makes sense. Smart. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um... She had a pretty turbulent and amazing childhood. Her family is abolitionists, and they are in Boston most of this time, but there were still people being tarred and feathered for being, like, Whoa. abolitionists. Um, she was into women's rights. She, like, would read the Seneca Falls convention stuff. You know, she is, like, very on top of feminism and abolition, and she believes it, and she talks about it, um, and so does her mother. After several setbacks in her father's school, they moved to this cottage on two acres of land in Concord. Um, They lived there actually for three years in her childhood. But they are poor. They're just so poor. But her dad is hanging out with pretty famous philosophers. So her dad is really good friends with Ralph Waldo Emerson. Really good friends with Henry David Thoreau and with Horace Mann, who Horace Mann's not as famous, but has done more for you than both of those men. He was the person who pushed the necessity for public school. So like without Horace Mann, like a lot of the institutions that we have for the general public would have not gotten kickstarted so soon. Wow. So he's friends with all of them. Um, and they liked him. They were like, he has sex ed classes right next to religion classes. And he allows African-American students in his schools and blah, blah, blah. But because he led an African-American in his school, Bronson, his educational career is kind of over. People are like, we're not sending our kids to your school anymore. We're not paying to go there. Um, so Emerson, because he's also a transcendentalist is like, I'm going to give so that you can be better. I'm going to pay for your family to live in a little house near me. So I think Louisa at one point has like a little crush on Emerson, Uh but he's like, he's all nice about it. Um, this is when the youngest baby is born the youngest girl, but she's not given a name for months because at that point, the family had had four miscarriages and one stillborn son. So they just kind of have her and they don't name her. She ends up, they're not even creative. They just name her Abigail, just like the mom, but she goes by May, which if you move those letters around, it's just Amy. (laughs) Which is just the younger sister <laughs> in Little Women. Oh my god. She didn't even try on that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which isn't the sister who dies in Little Women, isn't her name Beth? It's Beth. Mm-hmm. Okay, well Elizabeth is her other sister's name, but she goes by Lizzie and not Beth. <laughs> she did not try on I this. love this. <laughs> she was just like, I'm gonna disguise this a little bit. <laughs> The family situation is not getting better. And as a part of her dad's growing strong beliefs, he decides to be a real transcendentalist. He cannot work for money. Oh,
1: Mm. (laughs) no
0: jobs. You can only homestead. Everything you have has to come from the land in let's remember Boston, where it's fucking cold for eight months of the year. And he doesn't believe in trade. So even if you like have canned jam, the women aren't allowed to trade it with someone else.
1: This, okay, this is another thing that I feel like is happening a lot nowadays mm-hmm. where people are like, you're not a real artist unless you, like, don't get paid for your work. It's like, it's like you're a sellout um, if you get paid. <laughs>
0: I know. Sorry, but, like,
1: we still need people to be paid for their art. Yeah. <laughs> it's because it has to maintain, be still a career that people can live off of. Right. That is so infuriating, especially in a time when, like, It's not like his wife has the option to, like, disobey him and go out and work. And, like, start a business. And, make money. Yeah. Like,
0: that is infuriating. Well, the problem is, too, it's just for him. Right, yeah.
1: It's just so he can tout to his famous friends that he's really doing the work.
0: Right. And it's like, no, your wife and your children are at home suffering. Starving. Yeah. And then they all have to go out and take cleaning jobs. His rich wife, who's a relative of John Hancock, has to go out and take, like, the lowest work in this country to make money to feed her children while he is sitting at home talking about philosophy. How crazy.
1: I do not like this man. No. I
0: think that is He's a dick. Bullshit. bullshit. I hate him. I hate him. Oh, my God. So then, Dad decides... We're going to start a utopian commune. Oh, my. Of course <laughs> it's going that direction. Called Fruitlands. And there's another husband and family that go with them, and they create this, like, area. But this other husband is, like, a dictator as well. And he's like, um, no, the Alcott women aren't allowed to speak for themselves, Um this homestead is called Hillside, which, by the way, they're there for seven years <gasps> in this commune. And then afterwards, Nathaniel Hawthorne buys it. What? Isn't that crazy?
1: Also, I'm so sick of people posting, like, I just want to get a group of my friends together and buy a farm and we can all live off the f-. It's have you never seen a documentary about cults? It's never going to work out. No, it doesn't
0: work, it and it doesn't. Not, and farms work. are a lot of fucking. There's so much work, and you can't go on vacation. These are the same people who are like, travel now, live <laughs> your life. It's like you, can, if you have a farm, you have to water the plants and feed the animals every day. You can't travel ever again.
1: You can't wanderlust wander and have a farm. Yeah. I mean, all right, it's wa- maybe you, maybe if you have money, some come somewhere. Yeah. That, I don't know, whatever. I have very strong opinions about this because I have friends that run the gamut from like, you know, all across when I love them dearly. Oh, yeah.
0: But, and we have, a, you have an aunt that is an actual farmer, like yes. has a farm in Montana and, and like, she can't get away. She can't she leave. we will literally fly from
1: Montana to Baltimore for a crab feast for one night mm-hmm. because she's like, that is exactly how much time I can take away from my farm because i'm an actual working farmer
0: (laughs) it's crazy yeah so this is what they're doing okay but they're also transcendentalists so they have a farm but they're entirely vegan and they can't eat anything that grows down so no no potatoes beets or carrots why i don't know everything has to grow upwards but what don't know Obviously, they can't use wool because it's from a sheep, but they're in New England and it's cold. They also can't use cotton because it's from slaves. I agree with that. Yeah, Yeah. that is okay. I I, like the cotton boycott I'm good with, but they use no working animals on the farm. So there's people out there like pulling the trowels and things. Uh, The women weren't allowed to have opinions and this is where this is the home where a lot of little women is set, where the girls were doing the plays inside and the costumes with the little mailbox that they were passing things back and forth. Uh-huh. This is the seven years that she's writing about. So it wasn't like idyllic, like we're thinking about. Those are just moments in her life that she's putting in another setting to make it beautiful. I can imagine, though,
1: like having this really tumultuous childhood and being like, there were good, there were good times there were good times. How can I memorialize the right. good times I had with my sister? Exactly, Because ultimately when you grow up in a household with unstable parents, you have to, like, okay, I don't yeah. know. My parents were fine. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> great. But like, I imagine that like you need to cling on to those things that like were positive because like you couldn't count on them to like be super stable.
0: Right. And think or about her dad. Her yeah, mom her was dad. Very, her mom's stable. very stable. And think about, think about what they did they played pretend and she wrote that's escaping reality you're just escaping your life all the time so eventually Abba is like fuck this and writes a letter to her rich-ass family and is like come pick me up pick up the girls let's pack up our furniture we're fucking leaving so dad does decide to leave the commune and come with them but mom took control of the family at that point she is working. He is not. Um, and her dad, Abba's dad, dies actually, but it was very hard for them to get the inheritance money because he didn't want it to go to her husband in any way. So it took a couple years for Abba to get the money because he, her dad tried to do a workaround so Bronson could never have it. Good man. Very good, good, very oh good man. Very good man. Bravo, sir. So finally... The Alcott family has returned to Concord and they're living in Orchard House. This is the house that you were talking about that is the museum. They kind of settle there. This is the house they're going to live in um, for the the family house for the remainder of their lives. So in that like 30-year period, even before the kids were born, they moved 21 times. (gasps) 21. Louisa was educated as a child, though. Some of it came from her father directly, but she learned lessons from Margaret Fuller, Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and Julia Ward Howell. So her teachers are some of the most famous philosophers in the country. She later described this in a newspaper sketch called Transcendental Wild Oats, which was (laughs) a picture that she drew that got published in the newspaper, and it said, Plain living and high thinking. (laughs) That's so cute. She loves making fun of herself and her family. Well, and to be clear, it's like there
1: is so much potential in like trying to do these things. Yes. You know, I feel like I came across as like a bit of a hater earlier. But like I do think that situations like this, like she's saying, she's like, I met some of the most insane people when I was a kid because of this lifestyle. Right. But you just have to do it well. And I... He was not. He was not doing it well. I think people around him were trying to do it well. Sure. And people even now can do it well yes but it's hard and it takes a lot of work and like you know I just think that it's not
0: the escape that people think it is yes
1: if it were then we wouldn't have all of this escapism
0: <laughs> escaping <laughs> from In, the escape your <laughs> <their> story
1: <laughs> but yeah I think it's romanticized and yes, uh, it is it absolutely
0: is yeah So at an early age, uh, poverty made it crucial for her to work. Louisa was always a teacher, a seamstress, a governess, a domestic helper. She and her mom and older sister were supporting the family. And at times her dad would get mad and be like, stop interrupting God's plan. (laughs) But it was just her and her mom and her older sister. The youngest sister, May, was able to attend public school because they were all working so that she could have the money to go to public school. So she and her teens is just out and about working and it's looking really, really bleak and she's definitely angry about it. Like there are times in in her journal that she wrote that she was thinking about taking her own life. Oh my gosh. Um, she, like things like I was standing on the edge of this dam and looking down and I thought, what would it be like to just jump in? You mm-hmm. know, she was just not having it. But that's not to say that she wasn't still that wild tomboy that we know. She like stole a a horse and sleigh to joyride <laughs> and she snuck into an old factory to ride the coal carts around like she was having fun in That's her teenage kid. years her family hosted several escaped slaves on the underground railroad oh just coming gosh. through um and she not only, like I said earlier, was very into women's rights and Seneca Falls Convention, but she was very for women's suffrage. And um, in Massachusetts, when women were allowed to register for local elections, she was the first woman to register to <gasps> vote in Concord, Massachusetts. I love that. And she voted in the school board election. That's fantastic. Yeah. And her family also did things like take in um, a wealthy heiress whose rich family didn't want her anymore because she was, quote, slow at the time. So she is learning lessons about Mm transcendentalism. She is taking in escaped slaves. Um, She is taking in people who are discarded Mm -hmm. and learning lessons from that. But due to all the pressures in her life, Writing really became an outlet for all of her emotions. It started with journaling because she had a temper and she would yell at her family members. Um, But her first book came out in 1849 and it was called Flower Fables. It was a selection of tales that she wrote for Emerson's daughter, Ellen Emerson. And one of the lines says, I wish I was rich, I was good, and we were all a happy family this day. Oh, (laughs) The entire family struggled, but Louisa knew that writing was something she could do to pay the bills. She has started to see that if I write a little bit, I can make a little bit. And she said, quote, I will make a battering ram of my head and make it through this world by myself. Oh. So she left her family took solace in being alone and went to Boston where she wrote a play what? called the rival prima donnas, oh, um, which great name. I know. And guys. get there later, the actresses fight over who's going to play what role. So she burns her play. Burns oh, her
1: own work. My gosh! Also, guys, great idea for a band. So, <laughs> the if rival anybody, <laughs> if you want to make a band and then burn your set list every night at the end of your performance, let us know. And we'll come see you. Do it.
0: Do it. I want a dumpster fire on stage. <laughs> um, at one point, she was like unable to find work for a while, and sometimes she could write things that sold, and sometimes she couldn't, and then. Her younger sister, Lizzie, passes away, gets sick and passes away. And her older sister, Anna, gets married to this guy named John. And just like in Little Women, Louisa considers this event the catalyst of breaking up their sisterhood. She's like, it's over. I'm actually by myself. Lizzie's gone. Anna's out of the house. I am now stuck paying for everything for May because my dad's a piece of shit and my mom's doing her best and it's just really hard for her. Um but like I said she is making a little money here and there like she would sell things and get like $32, which for an unmarried woman at that point is a pretty big amount of money to get $32 yeah. for what you're writing. Um now Louise's mother ends up working her way up a little bit and she gets a job at this office that helps Poor immigrants get jobs. Mm -hmm. So she's like a recruiter. Her mom is doing that. And at that job, her mom meets a man named James Richardson. He comes in to see her and is like, I need somebody to come and take care of my frail sister. Louise is like, I'll go get paid to do that. So she goes to serve in this house. Filled with books and music and art and good company. Um, And the house she describes as stately yet decrepit. (laughs) So it's obviously fallen apart. Um, And Louisa kind of imagined herself as a heroine in a gothic novel. Which we're going to get to her horror stories in a minute. That she has written apparently. (gasps) The sister of this guy, his name is Elizabeth. She's forty years old. She suffered from some sort of chronic pain, but she didn't really need Louisa that much. So instead, James just like spent hours reading her poetry and like treating her like his confidant. And she's like, "I'm not here for you. I'm not here for you." <laughs> she's like, "I don't know what that song is." <laughs> oh, it's from Hamilton. Oh. She's like, <laughs> "I." She's not there, and he's like fine fine if you don't want to sit and talk to me like he hired her for his sister and then he's using her and he's like i'm just gonna give you the hard household duties and has her like chopping wood and oh like my God. the floors this is a horror movie i oh know in several weeks um seven weeks exactly she's like mom you gotta replace me at this guy's house this is terrible she- <laughs> Her mom sends, Mom, chop the wood. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I hate this guy. (laughs) Two other women come. Neither of them want the job. So she's just like, fuck it, and goes to the train station. He gives her an envelope to pay her for seven weeks. It's $4. No. So allegedly, as the story goes, she mailed the envelope back to him with all the money in it. She was like, I don't even want it. That's a disgrace.
1: Good for her I, I mean know. I would personally never do that I'll take any dollar I get yeah but
0: <laughs> I would use that money my
1: principles are not that <laughs>
0: not steadfast <right. laughs> and I mean I mean she does event eventually write a fictionalized version of this good I yeah. hope
1: she sold it for a million
0: dollars she was like I'd rather be starving than work for your dumb ass good yeah
1: seven weeks four dollars that's yeah. the title of the story
0: <laughs> and louisa is the kind of bitch i would want to get down with in the 1800s she's a feminist she's an abolitionist she was super charming she uh people liked her despite the fact that she was poor um <laughs> you, know? Can you imagine her
1: personally like was able to hurdle over the, the fact poor that she was
0: poor <laughs> how silly <laughs> i'm so elitist <laughs> so quaint i know oh my god <laughs> um and she's kind of pissed she's pissed at may at this point because she is working her ass off for everything she gets and then one of her like aunts like a family cousin takes may in as another daughter and just sends her to art school oh my god and louise is like are you fucking with me right now are you fucking with me that's terrible i don't want that I don't want that for her it's funny i feel like
1: you know like obviously laurie is the kind of thing Mm -hmm. that like ends up really dividing but i do kind of feel like the opportunities that came may's way were actually the laurie in the situation of like she was like why couldn't that have been like but also but also it's like there's an appreciation for so like she just doesn't really want to be married to laurie to right be clear no she doesn't they weren't right they, they were friends but like they shouldn't have been married right and it's like ultimately louisa has to acknowledge that like all the things that she went through made her a writer that made her famous right you know so mm-hmm. it's like that thing of like Well, yeah, like, I didn't want to marry Laurie, but, like, I certainly didn't want Amy to marry Laurie. it's like... (laughs) I'm tired of her getting
0: all this stuff. (laughs) I didn't want to go to art school, but I don't want May to go to art school. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? I know. (laughs) I know. That's how it is. And, I mean, it's not like she's, like... All alone. She has two proposals for marriage at this point. One that's kind of like a stalkerish guy. It's a big family joke, like your boyfriend's here. (laughs) (laughs) You know. (laughs) And then another one is this rich silk merchant who offered his hand in marriage. And she goes to her mom and she's like, I could save our family. And her mom's like, if you don't love him, don't marry him. God, what advice. Her mom is (laughs) come on, Marms. The best. (laughs) Great. Love her. And then in 1860. The Civil War breaks out. John Brown, the abolitionist from Harper Ferry, (laughs) Harper's Ferry, it's hung in the street. Shout out to Maryland. Shout out to Maryland. But the reason I shouted that out is because in her hometown, they had like a vigil for him. Really? After he was murdered. So Louisa May Alcott had a was at a vigil for John Brown. (laughs) And um she's about 30. And when you're 30 years old, you're allowed to become an army nurse. But here were the things. My
1: God, I mean, that's October for me. Uh, so. You're so close. <laughs> I'm so close to being an army Your nurse. Your dreams.
0: But, <laughs> June, I'm coming for but you. But you don't get the rest of this. It's 30, respectable, plain of face, and married. <laughs>
1: Honestly, I'm not very respectable, but plain of face and I don't married. Think you're plain I got of face.
0: it. <laughs> you're married. You've got 50% here. You're about to be 30 and plain of not plain of face. You're 30 and respectable. Oh, 30 and married. Those are your two. 30
1: and married. Those are my two. But yeah. I also I think I think I am plain of face um just because like I feel like I'm generic white woman brown hair. Being
0: a normie doesn't make you plain of face. Okay. Plain of face is like uh, never mind <laughs> just I'll tell you later <laughs> okay, so all right, so she's working as a nurse she's they they let her do it, even though she's not married. She starts
1: you're so plain of faith, you're in. <laughs>
0: You're a plain-of-face girl.
1: You are not hot at all. (laughs) Can you imagine? No hotties allowed. uh, You are a
0: basic bitch. (laughs) Vanilla as fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Louisa May Alcott. That's what I should have put in physical. (laughs) Plain-of-face?
1: Literally scientifically proven to be (laughs)
0: plain-of-face said Civil War doctors who didn't believe in Anastasia anesthesia anesthesia <laughs> okay oh my god i got to get on track okay 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 Whoo! so she starts with just basic sick dudes that's her job she, then soon she has to start holding people's hands while their limbs get cut off and then they have her like stripping men down and washing out their wounds and like holding men's hands while they're dying And it's rough. She strikes up a relationship with one guy who's dying and the doctors are like, we need you to tell him he's dying and like sit by him because his problem is he's so tough. He's going to hold on and it's going to take him longer to die. And she like strikes up a pretty close relationship with this guy for like two weeks and then like takes off his ring and a lock of his hair and mails it back to his mother crazy louisa calm down (laughs) don't be wild with it um but like this is pretty nuts because a lot of this is probably the first time she's seeing a man's body Oh, and she's just in this civil war hospital yeah you
1: don't think there were naked boys on the commune i don't (laughs) i mean maybe i don't know (laughs) We don't know what happened but then one day
0: a doctor walks into like the stairwell and there's like a metal railing out there and she's just like laying her head on it um Because she has typhoid pneumonia and has such a high fever. And this was a death sentence at the time. They call her family. They're like, either come get her body or come (sighs) get her. (laughs) Whatever you're doing. Her dad comes um, and she can't even sit up in bed for eight weeks. Eight weeks. Bedridden. They shave all her hair off because I guess that (gasps) helps lower the fever. Also in the book. They're giving her mercury as a (sighs) compound to make her better. Um,
1: I had a fluoroscopy done because I didn't feel good for four days. <laughs> yeah, she's this an is eight insane. weeks sane. Yeah. eight
0: weeks. And then she's having these like delirious, you know, like fever dreams where she's like, "I'm late for work." <laughs> like, <laughs> one where she's married to a Spanish man. I'm not making this up. These are oh, fever dreams that she's yelling gosh. about. But then, <laughs> a newspaper approaches her about letters that she had written home about the war. And they're like, nobody knows what's going on down there. Can you just, like, write a whole bunch of letters? And she does and becomes relatively famous and gets paid a lot of money for this, like, wartime, um, like, real-time reporting of what was happening at the Civil War hospitals. She also got together supplies for the 54th Regiment And then got money for their widows and orphans afterwards, which the 54th Regiment is the regiment of black soldiers in the Civil War that we purposely put on the front line because we thought their lives were expendable. Mm -hmm. So she worked very hard to counterbalance that. Um, And she was also writing letters about anti-slavery. She wrote about the mismanagement of hospitals during the Civil War. She wrote a a novel called Moods based on her experiences. And, you know, all this is frustrating because she gets back home after the war, after being sick, and realizes that nobody has done anything like at Orchard House. She has to fix it up. She has to make sure everything's put back together. Meanwhile, her dad writes and publishes a poem called To Louisa May Alcott from her father. A a poem. like i'd rather you just
1: write me a actual letter of an apology i'd
0: rather you just like get a job (laughs) and like help help with the family stop apologizing to me or like singing my praises to the public for being the savior of this family and just fucking do something
1: that's such bull i hate that i hate the fact that he instead of actually helping the situation just made a Made it all about himself. Yes, made a public apology, so people are like, "What a good dad! What a great like,
0: daddy!" <sighs> um, and yeah, so a lot of stuff up to this point has been written under pen names or written entirely anonymously. And actually, some of her work was attributed to like the daughters of Thoreau and Emerson for a while really? because they were around each other so much. And then also, Louise is one of those pers- people who lived in, like we said, thirty places. So they're still like. Trying to find things and journals that she wrote, like things were found, like in the seventies. What? So there's still things that could be out there for her. It's That's not... really cool to know. It is <gasps> because we like we know her writing style now. We know yeah. her handwriting. There's enough that we can get it. New Englanders, check your basements, honestly. Shh. Especially if you live on a commune, <laughs> <laughs> check your potato shed. Um. The one thing that's really cool that we know is in the 60s and 70s, she was anonymously writing 33 gothic thrillers for this popular magazine. And other than Edgar Allan Poe, she was like <gasps> the first person in American fiction to do this. Her stories focus around a Scottish aristocrat who tries to prove that a mysterious woman killed his fiance and cousin. Yes, a female killer ah. in these books. Um, she also wrote a couple of really fiery novels Uh, like bodice ripper uh, style for the 1800s very bodice ripper style novels with strong female character protagonists um and obviously i'm not going to mention everything she did but i thought that period in her life was pretty cool because she was writing about sex and drugs and murder and i was like that's so unlike her that's pretty unique yeah and also it's just i didn't know she wrote anything else let
1: alone like really cool shit that like i would read now exactly yes (laughs)
0: And in her life, um, then after she's writing this stuff, she gets away for a while. She gets hired to go with a family to Europe. Um, But she does strike up a romance (gasps) with a guy in Europe named Laddie, later Laurie. He's a Lattice. His name is Lattice. He's 12 years younger than her. She just stops working for the family and runs away with him to Paris for two weeks. What? Um, But they call it quits after Paris, and she goes on to England, and he goes on to do whatever, and Laddie is the later inspiration for Lori. Oh, my God. A two-week trill. I – okay.
1: Do you hope or, like, not hope that she, like, lost her V-card?
0: Um, I – I think she may have already had. Really? Yeah. Um. I mean, I definitely hope she lost her V-card at some point. I yeah. don't know if she made it to 35. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, I'm being just so on a commune.
1: Being, like, a single woman during this time. It's military
0: like, bases. You know, yeah. she's around a lot of men.
1: It's so interesting, too, because we talk a lot about, like, how like asexuality does not necessarily mm-hmm. mean like aromantic and like right. all these other things. And like, m- I, I wonder if like, maybe she like didn't want to have a long-term relationship, but she did want to like experience these, th-
0: you know, I don't know. I don't, it's, I'm really interested in her personal life. Um, she, there's a quote later on that will give us a little bit Ooh, more like okay. understanding. Um, so anyway, after she gets back from Europe, she, her dad publishes, uh, some stuff because he does, and the publisher's like, um, can I actually have your daughter write a book for girls? We need a book for girls. And she's like, I can't do that. I'm not, like, a girly girl. Uh Uh-huh. And he's like, just give it a go. Give it a go. So Louisa became very successful with the first part of uh, her book, Little Women, that features Meg, Jo, Beth, and Amy as sisters growing up in Massachusetts. As we said, it's semi-autobiographical autobiographical <laughs> she got rid of the dad like we said earlier um and she just thought this story was so boring to write Really, at first. she was just like nobody wants to hear about the trills of a little girl in their house but it gets published and people love it they can they're like the characters aren't perfect they talk like real people her sister um may does the illustrations for the book no the first edition is may did all that art so she's like good job at art school that i paid for (laughs) thank you for that um and wisely louisa went against the times and chose to keep the copyright so she gave away the publishing rights but she owns the work sells out so quick everybody loves it and they immediately ask for part two which that's called good wives or something like that Mm -hmm. today it's published as one book and just part one part two but it was two separate books she wrote it in five months oh my god and that's the story of the women in adulthood as they had gotten married and that again sells out so quickly it's followed by little men which details joe's life uh founding a school with her Mm. professor husband and then lastly joe's boys which is completing the march family saga which this is pretty funny because that book has so much mention of like meat and food and i just think once she started getting some money she was like i'm not a vegan bitch (laughs) she's like bring on the turkey (laughs) um as many of you know, Little Women is based on the heroine, Joe March, who is the second oldest of four girls. However, after some pressure from the publisher, Joe March ends up getting married at the end of the second book, which is not what happened to Louisa in real life, who at this point was considered a Spencer. Mm-hmm. She's in her late 30s. If you watch uh, the most recent Greta Gerwig directed version of Little Women, you know that they did a perfect blend at the end of the Louisa, Joe March-like braided narrative, mm-hmm. which is great. In an interview on spinsterhood, this is what Louisa said, and this is, addresses her sexuality a little bit. I am more than half persuaded that I am a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body because I have fallen in love with so many pretty girls and never once the least bit with any man. Wow. Yeah.
1: Interesting. So
0: she is very clear with... I. So I do think she had like trips with men, but uh-huh. I think that more than likely she had had some passionate moments with women. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. And before she dies... She burned everything she didn't want people to see. So she's one of those people who curated her journals and letters. I know. She left behind exactly what she wanted us to know about her.
1: I would love to know about, like, her relationships with women. Yeah. And, like, if she really.
0: Because, like. And we just don't have it. She totally could have. Yeah. And she got rid of it. And, I mean, she had girl best friends. Like, she was hanging out with the Emerson girls and the Thoreau girls Mm -hmm. like she was around a lot of women Mm -hmm. um but this book is so famous it's so famous that the church was like don't put it in the church library it's not a Christian book (laughs) I'm just like it's such a moral book yeah it has Mm -hmm. so many moral yes it does (laughs) Beyond drawing on her life for Little Women, she took influence in several earlier works, The Sister's Trail, A Modern Cinderella, and In the Garrett, the characters or stories of people in her life. But Louisa becomes very famous and very wealthy. She even goes out, and there's this guy who lent her $40 and was like, it's my advice that you stop writing. And she goes and finds him and pays him his $40 back with her money. Spite, 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 spite. God. She loves to do that. She does. (laughs) She treats herself to a brand new dress. She buys um, Anna, her older sister, a house. She sent May to Europe where May became the first female to have her work shown in a Paris salon. What? That's really cool. She's like, I'm going to pay for my little sister to go to Europe. And May said when asked about it, money has done for us what affection could never do. Louisa sacrificed so much to get this for us. So little sister does grow up. She is thankful. Eventually (laughs) she had to hide from her fans in her house she dressed up like a maid and kept a feather duster by the door because people would come by and just ask her for stuff. And like her house is public knowledge. You know, you could just go knock on people's doors. (sighs) And when the servant thing didn't work, she would run out back and hide in the woods. Oh my gosh. Louisa was among a group of female writers who addressed women's issues in the 20th century Mm -hmm. that just, or the 19th century. She's the 1800s, 19th century who just like blew us away. Um, and, I mean, she was writing everything. She, in 10 years, she wrote 54 pieces oh my that got published. Gosh. In 1877, Louisa became one of the founders of the Women's Educational Industrial Union. And although she never married, she did end up adopting May's daughter. Aww. May died in childbirth. Oh. And she adopted her niece, Lulu, full name Louisa. May named her daughter after her older sister, <laughs> and then passed. And um, May's husband said it was May's wishes that Louisa would raise her baby, so her husband gives Lulu to Louisa. Um, and Louisa's last book that she published was a book of short stories for her niece, now daughter. That's which so is so cute. It's so cute because her first book was for Emerson's daughter, yeah. like a book of short stories. In her later years, she suffered from a lot of health problems, including vertigo. Today, they think it was lupus that killed her, and there's a lot of evidence for that. But back then, they blamed it on mercury poisoning. Mm. Um, But mercury back then was kind of a catch-all for we don't know what's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. She died of a stroke at the age of 55 in Boston on March 6th. My daughter's birthday. (laughs) Get this. Two days after her dad died. They had the same birthday and then died two days apart. She's buried in sleepy hollow cemetery in Concord with Emerson Hawthorne and Thoreau all on the same hillside now called author's Ridge. Ah, what a great resting place. I love it. Her niece Lulu was only eight when she passed. She went and lived with Anna, the oldest sister. And then when Anna passed with her father in Europe, the Al. The Alcott Home Orchard House, where Little Women was written, um, is a historic house and museum. It's been that way since 1912 and pays homage to the Alcott's by focusing on public education and historic preservation. Her Boston home is featured on the Boston Women's Heritage Trail. In 1996, Louisa was included in the National Women's Hall of Fame because Louisa created colorful, relatable characters in the 19th century novels that... Introduced readers to educated, strong female heroines. And um, her writing has greatly impact and changed American literature. And she is considered one of the best American novelists. I mean, I agree. And that's Louisa's
1: story. That's incredible. What, what a journey. Wildlife.
0: I know her childhood took so long, but I think you need it to you understand it. her. Well, and also because...
1: Her childhood is so memorialized in little women that like you couldn't imagine it any other way. Yeah. Oh, There's just a woman walking in your yard.
0: Yeah. She walks her dog there.
1: Um, but anyways, but yeah, but she's I think that, you know, we think of her childhood as so idyllic. So like you need to know that it wasn't.
0: Right. Like it was hard. She worked hard for what she had. Yeah.
1: And like the girls in the story do go through hardships. Oh, sure. But, like they're not like the good times outweigh the bad in such an extreme way in the right. book. And I don't know
0: if they really outweigh the bad in her real life. No. um, And it's cool because she is one of those people who died rich and famous. Yeah, She had 10 servants when she died. 10. She, that's why the cocktail was called rags and riches. She lived both. Yeah, she did. It wasn't rags to riches. She kept that as a part of herself and put yeah. it in everything she wrote. But most people like that don't get famous. Yeah. Before they die. No, they don't. And she did it before she was fifty five. She died at fifty five years old. We love to see it. Amazing. Ah, Let's talk about somebody who died much younger. Yes. <laughs>
1: We're back. Second story. Second story, part two. Another floral cocktail. Very exciting.
0: Another (laughs) fictional, two fictional ladies in a row. I know. So fun. We're really doing it this season. I know. We're doing all of the bangers. Um, Also, just see the
1: official like rainbow bright fan account like liked our post today. (laughs) They better. Very exciting. They better. All right, so do you want to know what you are drinking for Juliet Capulet? I do want to know. Okay, this is called What's in a Name? (laughs) Of course it is. Um, So it is gin, lemonade, iced tea, and then you top it off with sparkling rosé, and then you garnish with a strawberry cut into the shape of a rose. Mm.
0: (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Mm. I like that. It's all right. I wish it were cold.
1: Yeah. None of the ingredients were chilled. But <laughs> you can serve it chilled at your house. I would, yeah, I would I would definitely recommend serving it chilled. But yeah, it's still, it's still okay. Not my mm. best, but it's all right. Yeah, it's out there. Mm. I like it. Any kind
0: of sparkly drink is. Yeah, you're making like two cocktails a week now, though, so I really can't get on your back yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So what do you
1: know about Juliette?
0: Juliet is a teenage girl. She's a part of a star-crossed lover story. Mm-hmm. Um, she is beautiful. As she says, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? They dated for like two weeks. Um, not even. <laughs> they. Um, she changes the plan, mid-plan, <laughs> <laughs> which like pre-texting is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um Falls asleep, isn't dead, then deads herself. Yes. Uh, her families didn't like each other. Uh-huh. And since then, sh- the idea of being a Romeo and Juliet couple of star-crossed lovers who can't have one another is um, like one of the most famous love stories. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Every trailer for every single Romeo and Juliet movie is like the most famous lovers of all time. <laughs> Which Which is true. It is true. It's very, very true. Um, So obviously this research was interesting because she's fictional, but she's also totally timeless. Mm -hmm. Um, So I looked at a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of Wikipedia articles, um, and articles from very, like, this was one of those weeks where it was literally too many sources to name. Sure. Because not one in particular really helpful this is an over this is an overwhelming
0: week for you i'm yeah. sure
1: it was just hard to like figure out what i wanted to say about her mm-hmm. you know so this is gonna be what it's gonna be <laughs> let's get into it juliet capulet is born in act one scene three of the play romeo and juliet maybe one of the most famous plays of all time She is a young woman who is quick and Uh, whose quick and ill-fated relationship literally coined the term star-crossed lovers, which I love that. I didn't realize that that was
0: literally written by Shakespeare Mm -hmm. for them. He invented so many words. So
1: many words and phrases. It's so cool.
0: I watched a rap about it on YouTube one time.
1: (gasps) I love it. Uh, But before we get into who Juliet is as an individual person and as a character, we should probably give a quick little summary of the story. Because my guess is that even though literally everyone is familiar with the story and the ending in particular, some of the middle gets forgotten. Like you said, you're like, it happens over the course of like two weeks. It's more like two days. Like two to three days. It's a crazy... unreal. Yeah. Like when you really think about it. I like
0: when the people online will be like, I know everybody thinks it's a great love story, but it's actually two teenagers who knew each other for a week and ended up taking their own lives. (laughs) It's not a great love story.
1: Yeah. We, and we will get into, like, the whole age thing. And, like, I don't know. There's a lot to be said for, like, the themes in this story, which I'm so excited to get into. Sure. <clears throat> um, so our story takes place in the fair city of Verona in the Middle Ages, where there is a legendary feud between two families, the Montagues and the Capulets. And right at the beginning of the story, they tell you, this story ends in death. So, like, you're going – I didn't realize that, too, that, like, you walk into the story knowing – that, like, the two young lovers die, Mm -hmm. which I think is very interesting. So the Prince of Verona is so sick of the fighting between these two families, so he's like, all right, the next person who picks a fight with the other family is getting executed. Cut to Romeo, the only Montague son. He's really bummed because he just went through a really bad breakup. He's like, I'll never get over Rosalind. (laughs) this is the end of me and his friends are trying to cheer him up they're making dirty jokes they're trying to be funny but it's not working so they're like you know what's going to be the most fun is crashing a capulet party like fuck those guys am i right so Romeo's like yeah that will make me feel better meanwhile lord capulet in his meeting with count paris because- oh i forgot
0: paris is cocoum mm-hmm. I forgot about Paris
1: (laughs) because Paris wants to marry the Capulets only daughter, our girl, Juliet. They tell her the news and she's like kind of bummed. Like Paris is older than her. She's not super attracted to him, but the opinions of a young woman simply don't matter. And she's not really a strong enough character at this point to like really voice those opinions. That's what I always say. Here we
0: are. The opinion of young
1: girls. They just don't matter. They just don't matter. (laughs) So they're having a party. It's a masquerade. Very cool. And of course, this is where our star-crossed lovers meet, and they are smitten with each other. They have this romantic evening until Juliet's nurse, like, totally bursts her bubble by telling her, that boy is a Montague juliet is distressed she's out on her balcony she's lamenting the fact that she can't be with romeo all because of his stupid name i mean if he had literally any other name everything would be fine
0: what's in a name i mean a rose
1: (laughs) by any other name would smell as sweet (laughs) as the princess of genovia once said um so she's like yeah that's fucking dumb i'm going to love him anyways And this is right about when Romeo sneaks back into the Capulet Estates. He hears everything that she says. And they meet, profess their love for each other. This is the famous balcony scene. And Juliet makes Romeo promise to arrange their marriage. She's like, I can't wait. Marry me tomorrow. And he goes... I'll get it done for you, baby. Got it. Absolutely. It
0: always reminds me of this scene where Aladdin is on his carpet, (gasps) except he's above her and just goes, Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Like, it's like, I know it's inverted because she's up and he's down. And I just think the floating carpet makes it so interesting. It adds an element. I love that. (laughs) So,
1: Romeo hits up Friar Lawrence, who's like, Yes, I'll marry you. What a great way to end this family feud. Sure. He goes, I love this idea. The nurse tells Juliet, you know, because now like the nurse is all in on this and Juliet and her are now cavorting on this and the nurse and Romeo and the friar they're all in cahoots with each other. Mm. The nurse relates to Juliet. Everything's all set. Juliet sneaks off. Her and Romeo get secretly married by Friar Lawrence. Newlywed Romeo is now in the streets and he comes across Tybalt. The streets. The streets. <gasps> Juliet's cousin, who is not happy about this new romance. How could he be? He confronts Romeo. Romeo tries to keep the peace, but his best friend, Mercutio, steps in to defend him. Swords are flying, and while Romeo is trying to stop it, Tybalt kills Mercutio. Now Romeo's like, You just killed my fucking best friend. So he retaliates and he kills Tybalt. This is a very West Side story. Oh, yes. Mm hmm. Um, this is extra bad because remember the prince was like no more fighting but since Romeo did not start the fight he just gets a simple banishment rather than an execution Juliet is distraught she's like my cousin's dead my husband is banished what am I going to do so nurse and Friar Lawrence come up with this plan to at least let them have a wedding night before he gets banished (laughs) so the Friar and the nurse arrange for them to have sex. Let's let them bang it out real quick. Yeah, they have sex. 13-year-old. the next morning, Romeo skips town because he's literally being forced to. Sure. Juliet's parents come in. They're like, good news. Your wedding to Paris is in a few days. And this time, Juliet is like, no, I'm an independent, already married woman. I don't have to listen to my parents anymore. So she goes to Friar Lawrence and she asks him for help. He comes up with this plan for Juliet to fake her own death So that she can ditch her family and go into exile with Romeo. He's like, this is perfect. Why
0: aren't we telling Romeo? They were supposed to. Oh, man. So
1: Friar Lawrence is like, all right, we're going to send a messenger to Romeo. Something happens to the messenger, and obviously the message never gets to him, which is so upsetting
0: tragic i mean it's tragic literally like it's a tragedy it is a (laughs) tragedy
1: um so she goes home takes and tells her dad she goes i'll go with your plan i'll marry paris like i'm a good daughter again and he's like great (laughs) she She really got him (laughs) she drinks the potion falls into a deep sleep they think she's dead so now because the messenger didn't get to romeo the first person romeo hears from is a friend of his and he's like Juliet is dead. And he's like, what? And he's absolutely distraught. So he buys real poison, goes back to Verona to die with her. He goes to her tomb but encounters Paris. They fight. Romeo kills Paris. And then he is reunited with his beloved. He's so, he like can't believe she's dead. So he drinks the poison and dies for real. Juliet wakes up from her fake death sees that Romeo has killed himself, so then she takes his dagger and kills herself.
0: Yeah, she's got the violent kill, man. And that is
1: the tragic end of Romeo and Juliet, which, like, we all know. But, like, it is interesting to, like, hear the story kind of, like, A and B because, like, again, it takes place over the course of, like, two to three days.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they're like, we met at a ball. Yeah. We decided we're going to do this. They said, no, you can't do this. Uh You're banished. And now we're going to escape together, and it doesn't work out. Yeah.
1: So, obviously, this story and these names are forever associated with Mr. William Shakespeare. But did you know that he took inspiration from another? I didn't. Now, apparently, this is very common knowledge. Um, and that, that, like, a lot of his plays are based off of existing stories, which makes sense when you consider, like, Antony and Cleopatra. Yeah. I'm an idiot, so I didn't know this. So maybe sure. you didn't either. Um, But the first version of Juliette et Romeo was published in 1531 in Venice, and it was written by a man named Luisa de Porto. This was then transformed again in 1554 by Matteo Bandeo, which was then translated by a man named Arthur Brooke in 1562 and called The Tragical History of Romeo and Juliet. And this Particular translation is most likely what Shakespeare would have read to inspire his play, which he debuted in 1597. Now, it may seem like, wow, only 66 years between the first version and the play, but the story of two young doomed lovers is a literary tradition dating back from antiquity. Pyramus and Thisbe from Ovid's Metamorphosis is from 8 CE. <laughs>
0: Whoa! They're really doing it. They're like, it's mm-hmm. the Byzantine Empire. Yep. Let's all shake it down. We, yeah. These people are like star-crossed lovers. Exactly.
1: And the Ephesian tale of Anthea and Habakromes was written in the third century and even has the little detail of the potion that mimics death but is really sleep. Even the names Capulet and Montague come to us from Dante's Divine Comedy written in the early 1300s. And that is all to say that even though Romeo and Juliet were the most famous, are the most famous star-crossed lovers, they certainly weren't the first and they won't be the last. And I think it goes back to the fact that like, we all in modern time always think that our problems are the most important. Mm. We're the first people to experience sure division and political separateness. And we're not. This has been going on since 8 CE that people have felt like because you think different, because you're different from me, we can't be together. Be together. Because
0: our families have our this families grudge. Families have this grudge. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, I mean, the modern day, like, United States one yeah. is the Hatfields and McCoys. Like, their yes. families hated each other, and there were, like, couples within those families that end up getting married. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's murders and theft, and, like, it's crazy. It is. But, like, I
1: think that that's why. It's like we talk about, like, when we did Cinderella, it's like that story went back so much further than I ever thought it would Mm. because it's a classic kind of fairy tale about, like, what if you were poor and then you fucking weren't? (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Wouldn't that be awesome? And I think that this is a similar fairy tale fantasy of, like, what – I know that we're separate, but, like, what if love brought us together? Mm -hmm. That has been the ideal and the goal literally forever like I just didn't know that this story could be traced back so far back to like the idea of young people falling in love and trying to break that tradition of fighting for no fucking reason and being separate so now that we have the basic bones of the story and the history of it let's get into a little more detail about our leading lady So there are a few big themes in her life. There's youth, love, and freedom. And, you know, they really intertwine in a patriarchal world. So Juliet is famously just 13 years old in the play. And Romeo, we don't get a specific age for him, but people put him at like 16 or 17. She's not very close with her mother, and she looks to her nurse as her maternal figure. These two things are important because her age and her relationship with her parents sets the scene for our tragedy. One of the things that endears us to these characters, Juliet in particular, is their youthful, youthfulness, which is often, I think, paired with naivete. But I don't know if that's a hundred percent correct all the time. I mean, it's—I think it's easy for people to like hear her age and write her off, off as a character and say she's a child; she doesn't know what she's doing. Yeah, she's stupid. She puppy love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but many people point out that this is. Like just a part of the problem because the real problem is that people don't take the feelings of young people seriously I mean when I was 13 and I had a crush it was the most real thing in the world to me and I mean spoiler alert I mean you and I are both married to the people that that we we had crushes on when we were young yeah and I think that it's, again, like, it's easy to just be, like, Juliet's stupid. She doesn't know what she's talking about. She's flighty. Yeah. But I think that this is what Juliet is feeling. And, like, our feelings were very real and were validated, like, later on by marriage. And, like, hers is too, though. And, like, things moved quicker for her than they did for us. But, like, I just feel like this is a big theme of the story that gets really overlooked is, like, the irrelevance of the feelings of young women.
0: Well, and I mean the, the greater tragedy of it is that middle school age people have like the highest rate of taking their own lives Mm. because people don't validate their feelings, whether it's love feelings or the emotions that they're having aren't validated. Yeah. And then things like that happen. Exactly.
1: And frankly, if her parents were not in the midst of this immature feud, Maybe Romeo and Juliet could have had a normal courtship. And it's also really ironic to me that Juliet is old enough to be married off to Paris, but not make her own decisions about her love life. Sure. But near the end of the play, we do see her kind of stick to her guns she could have stayed safe in her well-to-do life and forgotten about Romeo, who was banished. like, nurse and friar were the only people who knew that she was married, so she could have just pretended that she wasn't. I mean, I don't know if the friar would have... He had his own personal feelings about He's like, I know you're married. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to perform this marriage. So that could have been a, an obstacle. But, really, she could have written it all off. And instead she calls her tears foolish, and she disobeys her parents and goes off and finds someone who will help her. And this shows me that she's showing more maturity than her parents in this situation. She's like, I'm not just going to let this feud dictate my life. I'm not going to let what my family is passing down to me be what, like, like... (laughs) I already used the phrase. So I don't want to say it again. But she's like, I don't want this controlling me. This stupid fucking feud. I am more
0: than that. My happiness is more than that. And also maybe like don't have a masquerade ball if you don't want me meeting a random bu- right. a random boy. Right. And
1: I don't know. I just think that it's interesting that she's kind of cast off as a historically stupid teenage girl. When like I think she's one of the more mature people in this story because she's actually trying – To solve a problem when everyone else is just
0: stewing in it. Yeah. They're just angry and holding on to their anger. Exactly.
1: And one last note on age. It's very interesting to me that one of the oldest characters in the play, the nurse, she's even called Ancient Lady at some point.
0: (laughs) My dream role.
1: Ancient lady. Ancient lady. (laughs) She's supportive of the young couple and she helps them. And I think it's a sign that even like you don't have to be young to get swept up in romance. And it also gives a little bit of validity to Juliet's experience. Right. But then is it also like a class thing? Well, it's like, oh, well, like the only person to understand Juliet is like a lower class woman, you mm. know? But I
0: don't know. It's it's all very
1: interesting. But it can
0: also be a class thing and like you had more rights to, to choose your partner in lower class life. Yeah. Because the more money and clout your family had, especially in the Middle Ages, yeah. the, l- the less choice the girls had. Mm-hmm. They were in a bigger... It was a cage. Yeah. You know, still Did a cage, a but cage. it was a fancy one. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, and I think that this
1: um, class thing has comes through later on in the play because practical reasoning does still come through at the end when the nurse says, you know what, Romeo's been banished. Maybe you should just forget about him and marry Paris. Like... This is the safe thing to do. And maybe that is, like, her, like, being like, look, <laughs> women nowadays do not have a lot of choice. And, like, yeah. right now, like, you could make the safe bet and just go marry Paris.
0: And, like, I think I would have married Paris. Oh. Like, when I look at the story, I'm like, yeah. 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 He's vanished." I'm
1: just going to do this.
0: Like I look at Court of Thorns and Roses. I'm like Tarquin. Yeah. That's easy bet for me. Summer Court. There's my Tarquin. You know, Cocoa Wump, Very easy. Cute, yeah. Cute guy. Solid work Steady. ethic. <laughs> like It's not that I don't want to be like whisked away into a romance, but yeah. it's like I'm, I am a very, when it comes to my future. Oh, I'm a yeah. Very practical person. Yeah. And I, that's some, my future is not something I'm willing to take like that type of chance on. Yeah. Well,
1: and that's the thing. It's like, that's why it's still in the realm of fantasy. Right. Because like ultimately, like who really does make that big of a bet with like, you know. (laughs) But anyways, the nurse is like trying to reason with her being like, this is probably the best bet for your future. But I think that this is the final push off of the balcony that Juliet needs. She goes, the last person on my team has just turned their back on me. Sure. So she's like, you know what? This is not my home anymore. My home is with Romeo, like wherever he is. And there's also an interesting thing that happens over the course of the play, Um, even though it takes place, again, just over a few days. We see Juliet transform. And it can literally be seen in how much she she speaks. She only has about eight lines of dialogue when we first meet her. Her mother and her nurse take up 90% of the dialogue in her first couple scenes but as she meets Romeo it's like even then she's like mimicking what he's saying like he's like pilgrims touch hands and she's like yes pilgrims touch hands and lips and like she's more like mimicking and talking back to him about what he's saying and then she becomes her own person she gets more and more vocal she also becomes more and more mobile during the play When looking at a location breakdown of the play, which was so fascinating to me, we learned that, like, the play largely takes place on Capulet property, but there are scenes that take place in the town, on the streets, elsewhere, and, you know, in the church. And Romeo can move about freely throughout the whole play. Every place that is mentioned in the play, Romeo has been in. Juliet, however, is. Only in Capulet territory. She's in the Capulet orchard. She's in her house. She's on her balcony in her parents' house. She does not move very much throughout the play.
0: So Romeo's like her awakening.
1: Yes, exactly. When she's married, however, and she does kind of take that leap and takes her independence into her own hands, when she decides that like, she's like, I'm going to get Romeo back, she goes to Friar Lawrence's by herself and she's again like challenging the limitations put on her which she even refers to at one point as bondage so she's recognizing she's like I can't go back to like the way I was living before like just kind of going with the flow and doing whatever my parents told me like it's her awakening it's her being like there is something more to this life this love has given her the freedom that she was lacking and a part of that freedom And a part of the freedom of adulthood is leaving the comfort of your home, making mistakes, choosing love. Like, these are all a part of being an adult. Some people believe that Juliet's mistake is believing in love at first sight, but there is evidence to suggest that Shakespeare himself believes that they're a symbol of true love. Their meeting when they first talk about the pilgrim hands and everything— Their dialogue back and forth forms a sonnet, and it's a nod that they are perfect for each other. So even though it ends in tragedy, I think it's his way of saying it's real. Like, if they had lived, they would have been married forever.
0: Well, and I think that's the whole idea of star-crossed lovers, Mm -hmm. right? That it is—you are— Like, your constellation or your sign or the day and month you were born is supposed to perfectly line up with that person's day, constellation, time, whatever. And it, for some crazy reason, it doesn't work out. Well, and this is where I think we really get to the true part of the story where it's
1: like people blame Romeo and Juliet for being stupid young teenagers in love and, like, The biggest mistake in the story is on behalf of their parents. This is a cautionary tale for parents to not let your bullshit become your children's bullshit. And I think that that is so missed when we talk about Romeo and Juliet. Absolutely. You know, and that like we talk about this tragic thing that was, to be clear, 100% totally preventable (laughs) if the parents had been acting more maturely. (laughs) so now that we've analyzed the story and the character a bit let's get into everyone's favorite aspect of Juliet the women who have played her (laughs) of course there have been many famous women who have portrayed her on stage and lots of men if we're going way back into time when it was first produced because like Women I mean, at the time, this be modus, they literally couldn't even be actors on stage. It's so crazy to so me. Um, but I think we're all much more interested in the movies. Sure. Um, obviously, the most famous is Emily Blunt in 2011's Nomeo and Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> it is. That was my joke I referenced earlier. Um, but the first name a lot of people associate with Juliet is Olivia Hussey.
0: Do you know this version, the 1968 version? I don't. I don't. I'm not, like, there are not many versions of Romeo and Juliet that I've seen. I saw the ones I had to watch in high school, and I've maybe seen one or two others. Yeah. But they're not, like, for me, as soon as you start talking in old English, my brain shuts (laughs) down. shuts down.
1: You should Google Olivia Hussey. Okay. She is the most strikingly beautiful girl. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Okay. She was just 15 years old when she was picked out of 500 girls to play Juliet opposite a 16-year-old Leonard Whiting in 1968. Their youth and naivety gave a kind of truth to the star-crossed lovers that I'm not sure has ever been reproduced. He
0: looks like Zac Efron. Yeah. And she is just she's stunning. Big, wide doe. She looks like I a mean, deer in
1: the headlights. She is so young, so
0: beautiful. Yes,
1: like the two of them are so beautiful together that like it kind of takes your breath away.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's giving you the vibe of like these are kids that are in love because they were they were fifteen right. and right. sixteen
1: and they fell in love during filming and started dating. Oh, and like it didn't work out in the long run, but they remained really close friends. Like they, I read an article, like a thing that where Olivia Hussey was giving an interview. She goes. Oh yeah, she goes we don't t- we don't go 6 weeks without speaking to each other. Still, ah, they're in their 70s. That's adorable.
0: And The Girl on the Balcony, that's the name of her book. I know. That's I... really really cute. <laughs> no. Good job, Olivia Hussey. Um
1: and I just think that like when you see the scenes of them it is I think what he was going for. Like these two young people who like they are literally falling in love on screen and you can fucking feel it like, i love that so they're so young um but of course like this also is kind of why like they cho- they usually choose more established actors to play these big roles um because they were also really young and underage when they saw that they shot their infamous sex scene where you could see olivia's breasts and leonard's butt For years, Olivia had talked openly about those nude scenes, saying that she was certainly surprised because, like, they were supposed to have nude undergarments on when they shot it. But since it was near the end of filming, like, they decided, like, the director was like, you know, we're just going to do it naked. And she goes, you know what? When it happened, I was really comfortable with the cast and crew. She said in a 2018 interview, in the middle of shooting, I just completely forgot that I didn't have clothes on. And in that same interview she said nobody in my age had done nobody in my age had done that before. It was needed for the film. Everyone thinks, "Oh, they were so young, they didn't realize what they were doing, but we were very aware. We both came from drama schools and when you um work, you take your work seriously. But then in January of 2023, so just this past year, post the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. Post the Me to movement and post the director's death in 2019 mm. and post Donald Trump, uh-huh. the two actors who are now in their 70s filed a $500 million lawsuit against Paramount, Paramount Pictures for sexual exploitation, sexual harassment, and fraud, saying that filming those scenes when they were underage was akin to child pornography. I mean, like, l- legally, yes, it was. Yes. Like, they should not have done that. The suit was ultimately dropped by the judge, citing the First Amendment. And then also, like, Olivia Hussey's been backing up this scene for years and years and years. So, like, I don't know if it could have actually gone anywhere. But I do agree with them. Like, it didn't need to happen. I don't, like, she says, It didn't need to happen like that. It didn't need to happen like that. They were very young. And, like, they were underage. Like, they should not have been. Filmed on camera nude. No. That is just. There
0: is a very easy way to put like a nude bodysuit on someone. And creatively lay the sheets. Exactly. way.
1: And it's annoying too. Like that's what they were told they were going to do. Right. But I think that like once. Obviously she said it happened to the end. So like maybe he was just like. This is my vision from the beginning. So like I'm just going to go for it. Since we're like all good friends anyways. They're dating. So like I don't know. It just puts a weird tinge over the whole thing sure does still classic movie beautiful and i love that they're still friends i think that's gorgeous um also she has like a really weird tie to like um sharon tate (gasps) she was guys sorry this is gonna get dark so if you don't want to listen skip ahead like 30 seconds she was raped by this guy at Roman Polanski's house, and then became agoraphobic
0: because Roman Polanski is a he's fucking a nut job, person, a nut job.
1: Oh, the worst! I do not. He's not good. No.
0: So, anyways, I am sad yeah. that his wife and future child was oh, murdered. Of course, but
1: but not and, and that it makes sad me sad <laughs> that like so like Olivia Hussey was obviously like doing a lot of things like this like when she was younger, like very comfortable with like you know. Her sexuality and like doing her this, body, that, yeah. and her body, and then this happened, and she literally became agoraphobic. Like she could not leave the house. Mm. Unreal, poor thing. Anyways, the next very famous Juliet that I want to talk about is obviously Claire Danes and Woo. Romeo plus Juliet. Woo. Woo. <laughs>
0: Woo.
1: Claire Danes looks too nice for me. I, mm, yeah, I love Claire Danes. I really do. I do
0: like her too, but I just don't. When I look at her, I just feel like. Eh. yeah we're gonna get into the other casting
1: choice which like i do think would have been really really good in this role mm-hmm. um but yeah, i do love claire danes i think she was great in this movie she's definitely got the acting chops for it yes of course definitely got the acting chops um but anyways this adaptation is absolutely fascinating because of just how different it was there have been many movies based on Romeo and Juliet, such as West Side Story, Disney's Pocahontas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but Baz Lerman's version is absolutely iconic because he used the original Shakespearean language but set the movie in modern Verona Beach. And instead of swords, the weapons of choice are guns. The star-studded cast include, included John Leguizamo, Paul Rudd as Paris? Come on. Yeah. And of course, Leonardo DiCaprio as Romeo and Claire Danes as Juliet. Baz Luhrmann saw a lot of potential when he cast 16 year old Claire in the role. He even called her the Meryl Streep of her generation. Oh, shit. Which, like, I do. She's a very talented actress. She's a great actress, yes. But at first, he wanted Natalie Portman to play Juliet, which I could totally see. I feel like she has that Olivia Hussey look about her. I think her.
0: she's got the Juliet face. I think she I does, think too. I think the thing about Claire Danes is she looks too plain of face. She is
1: too normal. I would say she's very pretty and cute. But, like, I think that, like, this, this is something so fucked up. But, like, Natalie Portman is a person who, like, takes my breath away. She's Olivia gorgeous. Hussey takes my breath away like if
0: you were to see them at a masquerade ball yeah. you would be like oh shit it's not yeah. like maybe after i know you for a couple of weeks i think you're the most beautiful girl because right. i also like know your personality and you're funny and you're mm-hmm. rich and it's great but yeah and like and and to be clear like claire danes
1: in Gorgeous. the masquerade scene really is super like i so mean she is
0: a beautiful person yeah i just think she's more pretty than stunning yes but Natalie Portman
1: was only 13 at the time, mm. and that was just a little too young. Yeah. Also, so crazy to me that Natalie Portman is younger than Claire Danes. That feels not. Yeah, that's right an actual. That's a weird <laughs> time lapse in my brain. Yeah. So she was about, I think, like 16 to 17 when they filmed the movie. Leonardo DiCaprio was 21 or 22. So still young, still an age gap. Um, you know. But the difference between them and their 1968 counterparts was that they were both veteran actors when they got on set. I mean, they had already been in huge blockbusters. They knew their way around. Yeah, They were there to do a job. I mean, Claire Danes has, had already been in a lot of things, including Home for the Holidays, shot in your... I Uncle sat Pops. in her
0: chair. You sat in her, her chair. Her actor chair. Your
1: parents have the shed that Claire Dane signed with her own hand, which is very cool. Um so I just I had to mention that movie because she was in it. She did it. Robert this.
0: Downey Jr. <laughs> passed out on the sofa.
1: <laughs> famous, famous story.
0: Um more famous one might say than Romeo and Juliet. Yes. <laughs> And
1: also, unlike their predecessors, Claire and Leo were not secretly falling in love on set. There are a lot of stories about what went on. Uh, Claire has since talked about it and said that she did have a little crush on Leo, because who wouldn't? But ultimately, he found her a little uptight, and she found him a little immature. Apparently, he would play pranks on set, and she did not think it was funny. The most recent portrayal of Juliet was in 2013. Haley Steinfeld played the young girl, and she was only 14 when she filmed the movie, and Douglas Booth, her Romeo, was 19. This version went back to medieval Verona, and thankfully, since we were all older and a little bit wiser now, um, the nudity was completely removed from the movie when they cast Haley, which right call <laughs> like yeah i think they're maybe like maybe we can find a really young looking 19 year old yeah which like, you can which you can but Haley steinfeld was the right choice oh yeah um and they were like you know what why don't we just take it out because you can do that <laughs> you can just not do it <laughs> there are tons of other women we're not gonna get it those are the main three I want Oh to yeah, yeah, yeah um Maybe Juliet will always be remembered by many as the stupid teenage girl who crushed a little too hard, but can, you cannot deny the effect that she has had on love itself. People visit the Casa de Giulietta in Verona, Italy, which is a 13th century home that once belonged to the Del Capello, fam- Capello family. I need to remember it's not Spanish. It's Italian. <laughs> the Del Capello family, which some say inspired the Capulet family. But others say it's just kind of been connected over the years because the names sound a bit similar. Either way, a statue of Juliet stands below a little balcony off of a bedroom, which of course is called Juliet's Balcony, even though it was added to the house in the 1930s to increase tourism. (laughs) But the most important aspect of the house is the wall where people leave messages for Juliet. There is a passageway leading to the house and an additional wall that have been, has been covered in years by, over the years by graffiti and post-it notes and love letters and who knows what else. All little love notes to Juliet. The post-its may be relatively new, <laughs> but the practice of writing letters to Juliet has been around since the 19th century. Every year, thousands of letters to Juliet come from all over the world. Such as this one from India. Dear Juliet, I am madly in love. I know you get millions of letters with love problems written from all around the world. I write to you today to ask you for strength. I live in India where my parents won't allow me to marry the guy that I love because he is from a different caste. He's the only guy I have felt so strongly about. I know I have to fight my family for him, and I am ready. I ask you only for strength.
0: Oh, that's so sad. Oh, why'd you do that, Katie?
1: (laughs) And the most beautiful part about these letters is that they all get answered. Since the 1930s, the Juliet Club has made it its mission to answer every single letter sent to Juliet. Fifteen volunteers who call themselves the secretaries read the letters and respond. Sometimes they give out advice, but one of the secretaries said, it's mostly just about bearing witness to people's feelings, especially if they are feelings of loneliness. Even with our vast amounts of technology, it seems like people are lonelier than ever nowadays. And you would think that after years of reading letters from lonely, lovelorn people, it would become tiresome, but the secretaries have a different opinion. It actually makes them feel closer to humanity at large. Secretary Marchi says seeing that so many people are sharing the same feeling makes you feel a little less lonely. So if you ever feel sad or alone, keep in mind that you can always talk to Juliet because the secretaries are always there.
0: That's so cute. I love that you can write to her.
1: And and the city of Verona has embraced it so much. Like, This is a completely volunteer job. Yeah. Those people do not get paid for this, but the city of Verona does pay for all the paper and the postage to send letters back.
0: Well, and this is the exact reason that we do fictional women Mm -hmm. because the portrayal of fictional women has a real impact on the world. It says something actually what the creator was thinking, how it was received, what we do with it once it's here. Yeah. Like that's exactly the reason that we decided to do this. I know. That's amazing. I just,
1: I didn't know that. Like Juliet, as a person, like I, I just love that her legacy, like, lives on in this beautiful way of like connecting lonely people, right? Because I think that loneliness is probably the most universal feeling. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come, where you come from. I think that everyone feels lonely from time to time. Sure, and the fact that like that is the. I don't know. The end of this story is that like maybe Juliet makes you feel a little less lonely, which is what good literature is supposed to do. Right. Mm. So good. I love it. <sighs> All right. So now we need to talk about these two ladies in conversation with each other in a little segment we like
0: to call Just, Just, the, two Just the Two of Us. Wow. There's a lot of real life people and fictional people in <laughs> both of these stories. Yes, there are. And it, that's it's like a lot to take in. Mm-hmm.
1: It's a lot to take in, but I also feel like there are a lot of interesting parallels between, you know, fictional Juliet and real-life Louisa. And the fact that, like, I love that they—all right, here's one thing. <laughs> also tying Joe into it. I love that Louisa was never married, but Louisa and Juliet were almost made to marry for the reality of the story. <laughs> because I wonder, like— like Juliet was not allowed Juliet Romeo and Juliet were not allowed to have sex un- unless they were married so right. like, you have to have that scene of the quickie wedding right to make it okay that they shared this romance you know what i'm saying sure and it's interesting to me that like i do think that marriage is added into the story to make people feel more comfortable in both of them
0: <laughs> sure yes it is and i i think it's interesting that both of the authors like Louisa and Shakespeare had this vision of the world where like, it's not all good all the time. Like, yes, it's like Shakespeare obviously kind of believed in true love. Mm-hmm. I don't think Louisa did, but I think they both, when they put pen to paper, they were like, but this is what actually happens. And it's yeah. like, William Shakespeare was making stories worse and she was making her stories a little better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because the reality is, like, your parents fuck you up. Yeah.
1: (laughs) In little ways, in really, really big ways. So many ways. And I think that that is also a through line of, like, both of them, like, their parents were dis... Not their parents. I will say, like, Louise's dad was disappointed in how she was turning out. She was not the ideal daughter. And... Juliet's dad thought the same thing it's like how could you do this to me mm-hmm. because ultimately like parents like that who would sacrifice their ch- children's happiness for their own moral crusades because both of them were on moral crusades oh my god you know it's yes. like for some reason the Capulets hated them to use who knows why but for them it was a moral issue of like sure. we don't do that and because their daughters didn't want to just go blindly following them they were not the ideal daughter like and that like i don't know and like obviously like um louisa's was because she was just like an outspoken tomboy which was like what her dad was like trying to do for their children well
0: and i also feel like the i related Juliet a little bit to may Mm. um or slash Amy if d- depending on the story we're talking right. about fictional or non-fictional because you are not supposed to think Juliet is a stupid little girl uh-huh. she's not yeah she's been put in a rough situation and mm-hmm. is doing her best to live through it you're not supposed to hate Amy no and you shouldn't no and it's unfair and it's like you know I just think that her character is so interesting because you are seeing it through Joe's eyes, through Louisa's Mm -hmm. eyes, but Louisa was still giving her the money to go to Europe. Mm -hmm. Louisa was caring for her. Like she was a daughter, you know, like she loves her and she wants her to do well. Is she bitter? Sure. But one of the (laughs) biggest problems, like I, I recently read a, like this book about women One of the big problems is that women are mothers, especially of a certain age, are set up to resent their daughters because (sighs) they have more rights than they had. Mm -hmm. And it's not your daughter's fault that she has more rights and she's taking advantage of them. Like, that's what you fought for. Right. right? So it's like it sucks that you had to give that up and I will eternally respect you and, like, quote that— May gives at the end, respecting Louisa, like she fought so hard for us, that's important, but yes, you did have to give up a lot so that I can be a bullshit person like right. I get it, I get it, right. I get it, well,
1: and I feel like that's what they kind of come to in the end is like kind of like acknowledging the bullshit part of their family, but also like trying to get away from that part of their family. I think Louisa got away from it in her writings, like mm-hmm. she really she acknowledges some stuff but leaves out a, obviously the brunt as we talked about of the negative experiences she had and she really clings on to those positive aspects and juliet is doing the same thing at the end of the play she's like you know what i this isn't my home anymore i'm not doing this like i am going to choose this love over anything else because that's That's what's important to me, and I think that that's what the lasting legacy of both of these stories is, is love, and Louisa May Alcott chose to preserve the love of her sisters because that was so real to her, and I think sibling love is something that is vastly underrepresented. Oh, Yes. I mean, and that's from two people. We are absurdly close with our siblings. Yeah.
0: <laughs> absurdly. We <laughs> hang out multiple times a week with like all ten of us. Ten? <laughs> that's really crazy. It's stupid. I tell my but. my non-relation friends that I don't have time for you. <laughs> I don't I don't have time for new friends.
1: But like, I think that's why I love little women so much is because like sure. the way that she interacts with her siblings is the way that like I feel about my siblings is like oh my gosh, of course I resent you. Of course I fucking hate you sometimes. And of course, of course I'm course obsessed with I'm you. I'm going to burn your
0: manuscript. <laughs> <But> of course <laughs> I'm going to push you through the broken ice. Right, because here's the thing. It's like you do fucked up things to
1: your siblings, yeah. but you love them fiercely anyways. And I think that that's also how Juliet and Romeo are feeling like, this is a fucked up situation and we're going to choose love over it. And I think that that's the kind of message I'm getting from both of these stories is like choosing love over parental
0: bullshit. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I do also want to say though, before we move on Mm -hmm. that I know there are some high schoolers, like, age people that listen to this show, and if it seems bleak and love is not going your way, taking your own life is not the answer. No, God, <laughs> like, please, no. Love is the answer, but you, like, just press pause for a couple minutes. Yes. Like, parents can be terrible, relationships can be terrible, but you are worthy to be here. Absolutely.
1: That's such a great... uh thing to also say because, <laughs> yes.
0: because this is a story where like it does seem like their romance is so important that they can't live without each other um but if you your can. douchebag boyfriend broke up with you you can live without him yes you can <laughs> I, b- I believe in you <laughs> be a louisa yes please
1: um god are you ready i'm ready let's okay toast let's toast who would you like to toast this evening?
0: I want to toast women who see a problem and fix it. Mm. I think Louisa was like, my dad's doing this. I'm going to do this. My sister's doing that. I'm going to step in. And I think she did it for herself. She did it for her family. Um, And I just love action-oriented people. And I think yeah. her whole life she was action-oriented. Mm-hmm. And nobody was helping her out. No. She was an island kingdom uh, by herself yeah. so just to people who see a problem and go for it cheers. cheers
1: I'm going to toast the women who are forever being reinterpreted because it means that they can still give us hope yeah
0: <laughs> more cheers. of you love it Maybe one day Claire Danes will play me in a movie.
1: (laughs) No, we've totally offended her. We called her playing a face. (laughs) She hates us. Maybe one day All right. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? This is bananas. Ooh, mine's bananas too. Okay. Well, mine's
0: bananas just because it's so connected to your story. Oh, okay. I am reading a young adult literature, probably new adult. There's some sex uh-huh. in it. New adult literature series right now called the Zodiac Academy. <gasps> and it's literally this like huge series about these star-crossed lovers. Oh, fun. Except, you know I love the enemies oh. to lover trope. Uh-huh. I love that the trope. Best. But usually, and there's some sort of like mating bond or this, that, and the other. This one is like when your stars align, you are mates for life. It's called not called mates. It's called something else because fiction writers are really creative. Yeah. So this time, I'm going to be as least spoily as possible. <laughs> One of the people that gets into this, like, your stars Uh cross is like, no, I reject (gasps) the bond. Divergent. And then they're, like, (laughs) fucking pining for each other. It's, like, crazy. Like, I love enemies to lovers but like Uh this one's throwing me for a loop i'm like i want you guys to be together just fucking man up (laughs) i'm so (laughs) mad about it but now the constellations are against them so they can't even like be in the same room together like even though they know they messed up okay and like there's interesting yeah all right zodiac academy zodiac academy all right everybody is of age it's a college academy (laughs) (laughs) there are no 13 year old sex scenes thank god (laughs) okay what about you
1: I'm going to promote a podcast that I binged this week called Broken Hearts. Do you remember? Do you remember? <laughs> it was actually in the year of our Lord, 2018, <laughs> when we started this podcast. Sure. A story that hit the news about these two lesbian women who adopted six black children and then drove them off of a cliff.
0: Do you I don't, story? I don't want to remember okay. it.
1: This story, I remember it happening and I remember it like kind of haunting me because I was like, what the fuck? Because when you really dive into it, so they adopted these six black children and then they would like take them to all of these like Black Lives Matter rallies and like Bernie Sanders rallies. And like there's a very famous photo of one of the kids and he's like crying and hugging a police officer. And it was seen as like this like, this is what we need to be doing—like free hugs for everybody. Like this is so beautiful. And then, like when you realize that, like these women were abusing these children, it becomes like this outrageously sick story. I. It, what is the name of this podcast? Say it Broken again. Hearts, Broken hearts. Because Heart. their last name was Hart. H A R T. Michelle Love. Um. <laughs> <laughs> It's also like a real deep dive into the effect that social media has on the way that we see, especially parents, because she lived this life, one of the moms especially, because she was the stay-at-home one, the other one worked at a Coles. I don't know, and she was posting all the time like We're such great parents. Look at the things we're doing. Like we have chickens, we have plants, we have this. The kids are so happy. They're free. They're living their lives. And meanwhile, the kids are like being hit, not being fed. It's fucking sick. And like, obviously, like race is a huge part of this story because like it's two white women, and like it's like, well, they couldn't do anything bad, and it's like, (laughs) well, that's what happened. And, yeah, and, like, obviously, like, the whole story starts with this. But, yeah, they end up just, like, taking everybody out. The, they drive off of a cliff and kill everyone. <laughs>
0: it's insane. <laughs> that is insane. And I
1: just think that this podcast is a – I think they do a really good job of, like, looking at it from, like, all these angles and, like, what was going on, what are, like, wh- how did this happen and, like, what are the faults in the adoption like you know movement like not movement um system right the paperwork. to allow this right. to happen that's because crazy. these women had child abuse charges in multiple states sure but i did not know that at least at the time this podcast was made child abuse charges are not uh transferable yeah they don't follow like there's not an inter there's not a national database of child abuse charges
0: well that's so insane. they could just keep be.
1: moving and then nobody would know. Oh, my gosh. This, this right, story I gets so this deep. Podcast. You have That's to listen crazy. to it. I have
0: to listen to that. And,
1: like, I listen to a lot of true crime stuff. I couldn't sleep the other night because I kept thinking about it.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. It's crazy. Yeah, I love that. So, anyways.
1: All right. We love you guys. We would never drive you off a cliff. No. Find um, us on
0: Patreon. Find us still. everywhere. We're so amazing. We love you. Next week's our last week of the ah! banger season. And then we're going straight into requests. We're going to start oh, knocking, them knocking them off the list. That means 30 of the ladies that you have sent to us.
1: We're so excited. Last
0: chance to get some in because yep. we're going to start planning this week. Last chance. All right. Uh, we love you. And never
1: forget that. Oh, and also please rate and review us on Apple podcast. Yeah, that would on. be dope. Um, but never forget that well-behaved women
0: um, don't include family members in their novels. <laughs> And they rarely make a street. (laughs) Goodbye.